Zion National Park, lamb, iodine, whiskey, COVID-19, Burger King. When I returned to the Las Vegas McCarran Airport from the Zion Wilderness, just 200 miles to the Northeast, I broke down. Unlike early 20th century American Christian naturalists who helped bring Zion Canyon under the American National Park Service, I had not found God in Zion. In fact, I'd experienced just the opposite and view such early 20th century commentators who described Zion as a sanctuary of the soul or as a museum of the gods, a garden of heavenly specters, as our history's most notorious fabricators. Yes, on spring break, a week that begs for relaxation and renewal, states of being which I by no means attained. I didn't sleep. I cooked almost every meal. I tirelessly broke camp with every sunrise and sunset. My desire to go to Zion was because I did not want to have the same exhausting, satanic spring break experience as most of my college peers in those all-inclusive Bahamian resorts. Though, let it be known that such imbibing was often mandatory before falling asleep in the cold, wintry valley, as bourbon provided both warmth and shelter in a place where we lacked both. Anyway, after this whole panic attack episode ended, having already displaced myself to gate 35, away from my two friends who sat at gate 37, I jot down my feelings. What in the hell had just happened to me? I grabbed my pen and reflected. My hands got cold, pale, and weak, my heart pounding. I felt lightheaded almost about to pass out. This whole episode lasted only an hour or so in Terminal D of the McCarran Airport. Upon first feeling weak and cold, I told my friends, I don't feel so good. Amidst the hysteria that is COVID-19, the pathogen that has killed merely 3,000 people in our nearly 8 billion person world, I was scared to share my feeling ill with anyone at the airport. Don't get me wrong, the virus is indeed worthy of attention, but the attention dedicated to it is absurd, especially considering the amount of deaths from other viruses such as the common cold. I'm sure many readers have heard this line of thought. I didn't want to be quarantined in the adult playground and travesty of humanity that is Las Vegas. I wanted to go home and graduate. Footnote. Please read this COVID-19 comment with context in mind. At the point of my writing this essay, March 7th, 2020, nobody had any clue what COVID-19 was, nor the havoc it would wreak on our world. I do not in any way mean to downplay the seriousness of COVID-19. This was merely how I felt in the early stages of the virus, when cases up to that point had primarily been detected in Washington state. A few days prior to university closures and government-sanctioned shutdowns. I continued to write. It also doesn't help that I haven't pooped pretty much all week. Normally, I pooped every day, a few times a day at that. Healthy ones, leading with one right after breakfast. After my cup 
of economical Trader Joe's, rest in peace, Joe Colum, coffee. This backpacking trip, I hardly pooped. All week, I figured this was caused by disruption of my routine. I like to eat one mason jar of yogurt and one of oats every morning. In retrospect, now somewhat calming down, sitting here alone at gate D35, I realize that my poor GI functionality isn't simply from a changed diet. It's from stress. As I just cried on the phone to my sister, she assured me, stress manifests itself differently. That's it. I've been stressed all week. I realized that as much as I like to explore, I like routine, I like my food routine and the comfort of my bed. When these routines are disrupted, a domino effect ensues. It also doesn't help that the last time my GI functioned so poorly, I was all alone in Delhi, lying in bed, septic, bound to an absurdly uncomfortable IV, which tried to regulate my dangerously low BP. I recorded a video of myself wishing all my loved ones goodbye, reflecting on what I had done wrong. I still haven't watched this video. I don't mean to misclassify this feeling or to hystericize it or to discredit the feelings of those with serious manifestations of PTSD, but my linking these non-existent stools to my near-death experience sounds just like that. This was similar to an experience I had last fall. In one of my first meetings with my girlfriend's family, we went downtown near Boston Common to a nice and fancy restaurant a steakhouse, if I remember correctly. A special occasion, parents weekend. After much of our food had been eaten and several drinks had been drunk, I think I had a beer that night, my girlfriend's mother offered a bite of her lamb. Without thinking, I stabbed it with my fork and decorously placed the finely charred slab into my mouth. I chewed and then swallowed. I had not eaten lamb since the summer, since I had traveled from Delhi to the northern hill region of the Garhwal, in the present-day Indian state of Uttarakhand. At around two in the afternoon, after I had finished work for the day, I met Baju, a close friend of mine with whom I had lived and studied with for the month prior in Kolkata. At the Delhi rail station, I waited and waited until finally one of the screens hanging from the colorfully embroidered terminal ceiling flashed that the delayed Duranto Express had finally arrived from Kolkata. A few minutes later, there he emerged, strong and stocky as usual, one of India's mountain folk, a cap on his head, a backpack on his back, likely protecting some, some of his favorite Ruskin Bond novels, Baju is learning English, and a duffel in his right hand. We quickly purchased bottles of rum and whiskey, supplementing what I already had. Apparently, Baju was not satisfied with the 750 milliliter bottle which I had bought for the both of us in accordance with his June 23rd request. Buy some rum and whiskey for Uttarakhand. We mixed right there, next to the Daba, rum and cokes, before hopping on the first leg, a 12-hour journey of a nearly day-long ride into the Himalayan foothills. About halfway into the first leg of the journey, the bus pulled over at another Daba. 
and we passengers hopped off for provisions. You guessed it, we mixed and refilled our bottles. Prior to this instance, Baju and I seldom interacted by ourselves. Baju, a Gurwali-speaking truck driver from northern India, and I, an American college student, had met through nothing short of a miracle. Although we had now known each other for about three years, my Hindi and Baju's English were still improving. On top of our linguistic barriers, we espoused vastly different worldviews. For the month prior in Kolkata, even as we studied Hindi and English together, our most productive bridge had been the third of our trio, Babu. Without him, we took to rum. We drank that night, so much so that upon arriving in Rishikesh, a sort of boundary city between the desert of India and the fertile Himalayan forests, Baju had completely lost his mind. He stumbled all around the bus, begging people to lend him a light and a beady smoke. As we neared our stop, the driver screamed, Rishikesh! Rishikesh! And Baju, deafened with alcohol, continued to slur his words and flimsily collapse onto our driver. I tossed our bags off the bus, drunkenly added to the already loud, panicky sound circulating the bus, and then kindly landed Baju to the pavement beside our bags. About midnight, Baju took his clothes off right then and there on the sidewalks of Rishikesh. It was on that sidewalk that we spent the rest of our evening. I zipped my passport, wallet, and phone into a fanny pack and lodged the fanny pack under my butt a means of double security. I turned my backpack into a makeshift pillow. I dazed in and out of sleep, filthy from the streets, suffering from a slight case of the spins, until only a few hours later, Baju screamed, Colin, my phone missing. You can guess how the rest of the night went. Preview. Baju's prolonged visit to the police station. My being interviewed by a guru sage who had somehow not only known of my home state of Connecticut, but had lived there and had even been to Stu freaking Leonard's in Norwalk. Eventually, we made it to Baju's isolated home in the mighty northern Gurwal. There, I tried to recover from what I then thought was a severe hangover on that second leg of the journey, one on which I couldn't stop throwing up. Every time the bus stopped, I vomited. When I tried to eat simple white basmati rice, I vomited on people, on homes, on baju, jerk, I, I thought at the time. I had never had a hangover that bad. Baju, as a Himalayan truck driver not too acquainted with medicines nor biology, and I, dazed by being severely ill in a region of the world wholly unacquainted with, didn't know how to approach the situation. Naturally, I called upon Babu for composure and wisdom, who at the time was likely seated in Kolkata having a cup of chai from the pastel green mugs we had bought him the month prior. After explaining my suffering as a bout of car sickness, which in part I believed it to be, Babu told me, Bottled water, okay? Eat light. Package dahi and lassi are both available in Ukimat. Stay chill. I was suspect about the nature of my condition. I really hadn't drunk myself into oblivion the night prior, nor was this any regular case of car sickness. 
Over the next few days, Baju introduced me to his Gurdwali-speaking friends and showed me around his village. For such an introspective man back in Kolkata, Baju was a celebrity around these parts, drinking bourbon waters with just about any and everyone around, a swig here and a swig there. One day, as we drove upwards into the sky towards Baju's favorite temple in Tungnath, he and his friends pulled over for a quick rip of their self-proclaimed invented drink. Both scarred from the day prior and upset with Baju's indulging, I resisted. I couldn't encourage this. As they drank, they ate raw lamb together, some lamb Baju had purchased that morning from the butcher. My conscience told me, don't eat it. But of course, I did just that. Lamb peppered with a little bit of namak, salt, as had been recommended by Baju. Only a week later, as I lie in that Delhi hospital bed, I remembered that moment and that decision with such painful clarity. Lamb. Lamb from my girlfriend's mom. At the steakhouse in downtown Boston, I began sweating profusely, and I couldn't really pinpoint why. I excused myself to the bathroom. At that point of the summer, I had an absolute mane, a lot, a lot of hair. Beads of sweat gathered on my forehead and inched up towards my hairline. I sweat like a pig. Lamb. I gripped the edge of the marble sink with outstretched arms and stared towards the faucet. Breathe. Flashbacks. As my or our memories churn, both disclosing instances and shrouding others, I've recently realized that it was not the lamb which did me in in India, which infected my GI tract and turned me septic. It was a Burger King chicken sandwich I had that day before I met Baju at the rail station. That day, as I waited and waited, hunger kicked in and I went for it. I knew better than that. It's simple. Eat where the locals eat. Nobody eats at BK in India. It's not a good business model to get people sick. Americans get sick in foreign places because we crave our imported comfort, an import whose only customer base are expats and tourists who are bound to fall ill. The American in me wanted American food. I still see and taste it now, this suspect-looking, bitter-tasting meat from the worst-looking restaurant I've ever seen in India. This proved to be a recipe for disaster. And as my sister, who was a nurse, had previously informed me, a stomach infection will manifest itself within the first 24 to 48 hours, then subside, and then return with a fierce onslaught. As my memory now clarifies, the 24 to 48 hours after that BK proved disastrous. The ride up to Baju's hometown, the incessant throwing up, the next 72 were fine. Upon returning to Delhi, something in me festered until on the 4th of July, as I yearned for more American, a classic Budweiser at that, I realized I didn't just feel a little bit sick. After a night on the town by myself, I walked back to my homestead, feeling slightly strange, hazy. I got in bed and the shivers came again, and so I went north on the Delhi Metro Yellow Line until I stumbled into the emergency room of Mulshand Med City. Upon being admitted to this Delhi hospital, you guessed it, I called my sister. 
in McCarran Airport. Memories of weak stools and their associations. Parents weekend with my girlfriend's parents. Memories of lamb, of throw up on the ride to the Grewal of the Delhi Hospital. All compounded by the inherent stresses of backpacking and the insurgent coronavirus. It took speaking with my sister that day in Terminal D at gate 35 to reconcile this complex onslaught of emotions. These memories, ones exacerbated by the coronavirus, which I normally wouldn't fear, but which all news outlets' daily briefings nevertheless decide to exaggerate the prominence of. It is in fact news. And after returning from a few days without service, I inevitably joined the hysteria. It also didn't help that I had drunk iodine-purified water for the past few days and had been paranoid of the cloudy Laverkin Creek water, which I normally would have trusted, but in the spirit of my energizer bunny franticness, I began to reconsider and vigorously interrogate. As she walked me through my feelings in her ever so calm and ever so supportive way that only a sibling can relate, I gradually swallowed my pride and cried. I began reflecting on this stressful, sleepless past week in Zion and on all of the above. With the end of college nearing, I told her, I didn't really make any best friends in college. Once again, she both assured me and offered a different perspective. We got closer in college, she said. She was right. We lived together my junior year. Probably just a year ago, I wouldn't have called her. And I had, in fact, made great friends in college. I truly loved these guys I had just camped with. We merrily had just spent a week together in the wilderness. Such moments of tension or disagreements are inevitable. If this doesn't happen, are they really your friends? As she told me to take deep breaths, I was ready to do as she suggested, to run my cold hands under warm water. I would resituate the amped fears of COVID-19 into a rational perspective and bravely walk into an airport bathroom, arguably a second epicenter of the virus, if there had to be one, and unzip my fly next to a procession of masked peers. End. Next time I hear Rihanna's corny, we found love in a hopeless place, which blasted in Terminal D this day, hovering among the strangely placed slot machines, I'll instead try my best to remember not the bad, but the good, the love of my sister. I'll remember how on an eventually healthy day in that Delhi hospital, I watched Up. That movie, of course, still reminds me of my illness. But above all, it reminds me to live a grateful life, to consider and respect my health deeply, to love to live. The good and the bad often overlap. If we are lucky enough, lucky to have support and guidance in our lives, we have an option to choose the good. A few hours later, I grabbed my journal and reflected once again, this time even further removed from the panic attack. And now I'm on the plane. I got through it. As Baju, Babu, and I would say, I am a Ramse. I combated the dissension with the help of another. There was a moment as I sat on the phone with my sister in which for a split second I contemplated, do I be honest? 
or do I hold it in? I made the right decision and now I've not been and I'll use the words again. Hysterically quarantined in the fake place, the adult playground and travesty of humanity that is Las Vegas. A few breaths later, I realized this was a productive spring break. I learned more than I ever have on any of my one day outdoors trips I've led. I learned about myself. In instances when my friends had been unhelpful, I realized that they had been so because of me. Because I had unrealistic expectations from my camping partners, expectations which I had not, in fact, even articulated. As in most instances of frustration, we ourselves are to blame. Despite my friends having less backcountry experience than me, I didn't treat them as I treat participants on other backpacking trips. I tried to be both a friend and a field guide. When one of them insisted on packing some bulky clothes for our backcountry excursion, thus affording little room in his backpack for group gear, I didn't properly counsel him on the importance of packing light, packing strategically. As legend now has it, being an adamant Midwesterner, he in fact brought all three 2010, 2012, and 2015 Chicago Blackhawks Stanley Cup sweaters into the backcountry. If I'd operated as a field guide speaking to a participant, I would have done just that. But as a friend, jesting, I told him he was a fool, and in an attempt to compensate for the lack of room in his backpack, I carabinered a sleeve of tortillas to his backpack. A funny move, for sure, one that got some laughs out of the boys, but a more durable solution, one which would have eased my load, which then pained my back and gave me a headache, would have been to speak calmly, deliberately, educationally. I should have been more of the latter, a field guide, because doing too much of the former, a friend, made me far worse in both roles. I could have been more communicative and stern with my directions and the expectations for our group. I feared coming off a jerk. Of course, this took a toll on my psyche, which, when contextualized with these other numerous factors whirling around in my mind, led to this moment in the airport. A few breaths later, I have learned a thing or two. So don't go telling my friends my breakdown was their fault. Our memories and our brains' convoluted associations yield complex realities. And so, upon reflecting, I'm reminded again of those early 20th century American thinkers who helped popularize the special effect of Zion National Park, with whom I felt so at odds with as I hyperventilated in the airport. One explorer even wrote in a 1926 brochure promoting the park that he or she who visits Zion and declares there is no God, he's got more courage than I have. Unfortunately, following this experience, my faith in finding God in Zion had been obliterated. Just as many of my college peers had descended to Satan's depths in the Bahamas, I thought myself to have accompanied them into those blazes. But given second thought, I realized that sure, this experience and subsequent breakdown was not euphoric nor spiritually productive in the traditional sense. 
I did not return to campus relaxed and renewed, having had peaceful revelations as I peered up at Zion's sublime walls. But would that have been an encounter with God? Or had the rationalization of my feelings, or at least my attempt at doing that, been what I needed? This skip tracing, time jumping, synthesis of my bad memories and subconscious associations had, if not been resolved, then maybe somewhat addressed. Maybe this was a confrontation with God, reached via a journey to the depths of myself, not experienced within Zion Canyon, but maybe stimulated by it.